0: If you'd heard last week's sermon, you could be forgiven for feeling a sense of deja vu today. Because a piece of scripture we're looking at today overlaps last week's passage. And one of the things I try to do when I preach is to bring something fresh each time. And how can I do that today? I mean, not only is it a familiar passage, but we also looked at some of it last week. So if we ever needed the Holy Spirit to breathe life into the feeble man you see before you, it's now. And we give thanks to God. That's exactly what he does through preaching. It's this inexplicable combination of the tiny efforts of man and the magnificent inspiration of his spirit that leads us to learn more of God through what the Apostle Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. Uh, Plus, I'm helped by two important principles that God set into this universe, and that's history and repetition. History and repetition. History and repetition. No, stop. Stop, Rob. As as many of you know, I'm a musician, and not a very good one, more uh, a triumph of enthusiasm over talent. I enjoy playing, but I find practicing tedious, hence not a very good musician. But practice, which is kind of another word for repetition, is vital. When I started learning the drums, I would take a single bar of a drum pattern, that's four beats, one, two, three, four, and play it over and over again to everyone's delight. Thank you very much. No, 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 And my next door neighbor at this time, she loved this so much that she would join in showing her appreciation by banging pots and pans together as loud as she could in the other half of our three bed semi. And because of that repetition, I can now play the drums a bit. And each time Sharon and I lead worship here, we spend the week before practicing. And that's not so that we can bring any kind of performance. It's so that we've practiced enough that hopefully we won't cause a distraction by a high level of mistakes and wrong notes. And this practice, this repetition is how we honor God. And it's how we honor you, our brothers and sisters, who are gracious enough to sing along with our amateur efforts. So that's why repetition. Is important but what about history how is that important I'm going to read a section of prophecy that I received nearly 35 years ago when I was 13 quick maths you can work it out uh, my family were at a meeting where a guy who was known as a prophet was speaking and he would tend to pick out people in the congregation and give them direct words from God which like anything said to be a modern-day prophecy we weigh and We watch. And I was standing with my family and my big sister, Helena, had her protective arm around me. And here's a section of the prophecy The Lord has put his music on the inside of the heart of this young man and this young woman, Helena, that's holding him now, too. Somehow or another, her gift is rubbing off on him. It was in him, but it's like it flowed down a stream of the light and the fire of God has come through her since he has been about seven years of age. This thing has just flowed out of her into him and ignited and brought to life what's happening on the inside of him. That music is very definitely going to be used of God. That's part of my history. And it's true that my sister led the way with music. She learned the recorder first, that most sacred of instruments. (laughs) And... (laughs) And we, um, we sang together and music, worship music in particular, became an integral part of our lives. And so something from my history, something that God set in motion all those years ago, continues to have an impact decades later. And when we look at history, we don't live there. We don't necessarily dwell on our history, but it really helps us to understand later points in the story. And when we repeat these things it helps us to learn so we'll start by repeating some of the scripture that we read last week plus an extra bit 1 corinthians 11 23 to 32 i'm going to read from the esv today i generally prefer to use the nlt the new living translation because it's more accessible easy to understand translation but there's a bit in the translation in the nlt and in fact a few other versions that could be slightly misleading, I think. So the ESV it is. 1 Corinthians 1123 23 to 32. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the nights when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's look at some of the early history that came before and pointed to the Last Supper because the Last Supper is part of our history. It influences the church today, but it also has its own history. And looking at that history helps us to understand how precious communion remains today. And when we understand how precious communion is, we'll see why Paul makes such a big thing of doing it rightly the Last Supper happened 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years before that was the time of Abraham the great patriarch the father of the Israelite nation and we're going to zoom in on one period in Abraham's life in Genesis 14 and this is this is before God changed his name from Abram to Abraham and Jeff briefly made mention of this episode in his sermon last week So, we're in the Middle East and people have grouped into tribes which are individually ruled by kings and these kings form alliances and some kings then spend far too much time picking fights with other kings and generally knocking seven bells out of each other. And at this point in our story, four kings have beaten five other kings and they've ransacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in so- uh, Sodom and he and his family are kidnapped and taken away with everything else that's been stolen from the two towns. And Ab- Abraham hears of this and he takes action. Ab- uh, Genesis 14, 14 to 20. Genesis 14, 14 to 20. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Churdor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavar, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, this is the name that you'll recognize from last week, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything. Now the first time you see this, you can be forgiven for thinking, what did I just read? There's this seemingly random king called Melchizedek who's also a priest bringing bread and wine in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recalls Jesus, our high king and priest, bringing bread and wine 2,000 years later. And th- this history of communion includes this incredible scene from the life of Abraham where captives are rescued from evil forces. And this is celebrated with a blessing, with praise to God, and with a meal with bread and wine. Do you see? Hey. Yeah, and then if we chop in half the distance between yeah. this event and the Last well, Supper, we arrive at the original hey! Passover. So 1,000 years after Abraham meets Melchizedek, and 1,000 years before Christ, we have this yeah. cornerstone event I'm in, a in the life of the Israelites. As I'm sure you know, the whole nation's in slavery to Egypt. And God sends Moses to facilitate the rescue of the Israelites, and he also sends the famous ten plagues. And the the final plague is the death of the firstborn. And as as you probably recall, God tells the Israelites to eat and prepare this special meal and to sprinkle lamb's blood on their doorways. And this is the sign to the destroying angel of God not to touch the firstborn in that household. Exodus 127 7-8. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. so They shall eat it. This meal is the Passover meal. And it's called that because the angel of the Lord passes over those houses. And this ushers in the feast of unleavened bread, verses 14 to 15a. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. It was a celebration with the special bread and the wine representing not only the blood of the Passover lambs, but also the blood of the Lamb of God. In the original Passover, a lamb is sacrificed, and this results in the rescue of a nation. Pharaoh sends them out. And in this new, greater Passover, the Lamb of God is sacrificed and this results in the rescue of the world. Notice how the impact and the meaning of the bread and wine intensifies as we move forward through history. In the Genesis account we see a family and their relatives, uh, Lot and his relatives saved. In Exodus, for the Passover, we see bread and blood, and we see a nation saved. And then when the the Last Supper is fulfilled in the cross, we see bread and wine, body and blood, and the whole world saved. That, that history, that sacred timeline, that intentional plan of the Lord God Almighty, that repetition of these symbols reveals to us, the unfathomable mind of God, and the awesome meaning of communion. As Jeff made so clear last week, this is no small thing we do. And so back to our main passage, 1 Corinthians 11. This is why Paul says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Many of us have heard this before. But we need reminding and here's why. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that expression? The more often we experience something, the less we tend to value it. Take mobile phones, for example. These things are far more sophisticated than the technology that sent man to the moon. The first computers were so big they'd fill entire rooms and these tiny things are more powerful than those room-filling goliaths and cheaper. You could probably run a small country's anti-ballistic missile system on this thing that you hold in the palm of your hand. And what do we do with them? We play Candy Crush Saga. (laughs) We watch funny videos of cats. And we whinge on Twitter about shortages of toilet rolls and oil. These things are amazing. And so, quite understandably, we drop them down the toilet. Familiarity breeds contempt. Whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Do we, as people who love Jesus, want to be guilty concerning his body and blood? And this pulls us into the section of the passage that's perhaps the hardest to understand uh, 1 Corinthians 11 12 to 32. but when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world we mustn't adopt an unworthy manner we are to examine ourselves we should discern the body we must judge ourselves truly God wants us to be open and transparent see-through God wants me to be honest and transparent. God wants you to be honest and transparent. And these are words that you might expect to see on a company's vision and value statement or here at a self-help conference. But here now, these words have meaning. Honesty and transparency. Acts 5 verses one to five. But a man named Ananias, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. As you probably know, next comes Sapphira, and she repeats the story and suffers the same fate. I mean, God knows everything. What's the point of trying to hide things from him? I was lying in bed a couple of weeks ago, trying fruitlessly to go to sleep, when a thought popped into my head. You've become self-centered, Rob. I've become self-centered. And I couldn't deny it, because it was completely true. When I look back at the things that had been dominating my thoughts recently, my own happiness and contentment seemed to be right there in the middle of it, self-centered. In case you're keeping count, this new entry is number 287 on the list of reasons why Rob Pomeroy is utterly unqualified to preach. I'd only recently said to my wife that I was massively discontent and there are reasons for this You know the the last 17 years have been particularly hard on us But I was brought up reading the Bible I've read it many times and so immediately I have things in my head like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 12 to 13 I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in every situation whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want i can do all this through him who gives me strength paul knew that in god it's possible to be content through all life's circumstances but here i am discontent and trying to figure out ways to make myself happy to balance The scales, nicer food, better books, fancier gadgets, more time with friends. And none of those things are wrong. In fact, God, as a good father, wants us to have pleasure in life. I'll say that again because some of you look like you don't believe me. God, as a good father, the best father, wants us to have pleasure in life. But by looking in any direction but God, I was forgetting the most important focus of my life and had become self-centered. The first and most important principle of life, the universe, and everything is God's glory. That's what the universe is here for. That's what nature is here for, that's what you and I are here for, to reflect God's glory, to be here for Him and with Him. God is rightly concerned with His own glory. It must be expressed and seen. For a human, this would be self-centered and foolish, we aren't so glorious. But God is, and it's right that He be worshipped in His glory. The Westminster Larger Catechism has as its first question, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. If we go to see an amazing work of art in a gallery, I'm pretending to be cultured now, I've never done that. Do we um do we praise the brushes the artist used or the artist we praise the artist and god has revealed his glory to us and we praise him for it and the only way for me to get my life straight is to drag that principle the principle of seeking god's glory right back to the top of my list of priorities. To be clear, it's not wrong to be content, happy, to enjoy friendships and the pleasant and good things in this life when we can. But, you all know this, I'm sure, Matthew 6, 31 to 33, Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God is a good God, a good Father. And I had my priorities wrong. I'm not trying to beat myself up in front of you. It's just if I I want to show an example of self-examination, it's better that I pick on myself. If any of us examine ourselves truly with honesty and transparency, it's not going to be pretty. But that's what God wants. That's what Jesus asks of us. And when we come together to celebrate the Holy Meal, the act of communion, which remembers the death and sacrifice of Jesus, we examine ourselves. In doing this, we truly see ourselves in our low position and God in his high position. Because unless we remind ourselves through repeating this practice, We're all in danger of becoming careless, ignorant, self-absorbed, and of disrespecting the body and blood of Christ. And those failings can have serious consequences. Paul says in verse 30, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Yikes. But there's good news. In this passage and for me one of the best pieces of good news is something this passage doesn't say verse 28 let a person examine himself it doesn't say let a person examine himself and fix all the things that are wrong with him removing every possible trace of evil and impurity and it's just as well if that's what we had to do before taking communion none of us would get as far as even sniffing the bread we come not pretending we're anything or anyone else we come as we are just that we come in honesty and with transparency Now this phrase discerning the body In Verse 29 is a bit ambiguous for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself Discerning the body whose body And here we come to the reason why I've used the ESV today rather than other versions a few versions translate this as discerning the Lord's body But it looks like the Greek for Lord Kyrios, doesn't appear in the original so potentially You can read it either way. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the Lord's body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Or anyone who eats and drinks without discerning his own body, his own sinful flesh, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I don't know which is right. I'm not a Greek scholar. Perhaps the Lord's is strongly implied, or perhaps Paul was being... Deliberately ambiguous whatever the case because of the verse that comes immediately before about self-examination We aren't taking liberties with the text if we say that before we take communion. We need to see ourselves truly warts and all In fact we should do both discern the Lord's body and discern our own See him as he is And us as we are. And this is a dangerous thing to be honest and transparent about ourselves, isn't it? Although we're saved, we're still sinful, and sometimes what we see in ourselves is ugly. But this is the beauty of communion, this is the beauty of the way Jesus chooses us and calls us and draws us to Him. We might want to shrink away saying, no, no, Lord, I'm too dirty and you're too holy. And gently he says, I love you. Come. So to keep this self-examination balanced and healthy, let me suggest this approach. Glance at yourself then gaze at him. Glance at yourself, gaze at him. What was the point of this sermon? Have you received something new from the Holy Spirit? I hope so. At the very least, I hope this has reminded us how to prepare ourselves for sharing the Lord's Supper. Here's my four-point summary to redeem myself as a preacher. One, appreciate the history of communion. Two, accept and value repetition. Three, be honest and transparent before God. Four, and perhaps most importantly, glance at yourself. Gaze at him. Lord, I wouldn't like to count how many times I've shared in communion and I'm pretty sure that I've not been appropriately reverent and open when I've done so sometimes. So forgive me for that, Lord. But as we gather together as part of your body, help us to be honest before you, Lord, but also to know that we receive your love exactly as we are. And we praise you, Lord, for what we are about to do. Amen.